0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Hey, hope hope you're doing well. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, This past week, my family and I, we were in the Palm Desert, which is normally a, a warm and sunny place. Well, not so much this past week. Uh, we got rained out, but we still had a great time. And I, so I, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And um, just also want to say, hey, I'm just, I'm so thankful for each of you. And I wanted to just express that it is an honor and a privilege to be your pastor, to be your friend, and to be a part of this mission with you. So I just want to express that I'm thankful for all of you. Um, so today is a special day in the church here. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And so we're starting a new series today. And in this season, we're looking at letters that Jesus wrote to churches as found in the book of Revelation. Before we jump in, I want to say just a brief word about Advent, about what this is. I'm sure we probably have some people with us for whom this is a new practice. So I want to just share just briefly about what this is. And so here here at the Vine, we follow something called the church calendar. And what this is, this is a, a tool to help us orient our lives around God and around the great story of Scripture. And, and the church calendar consists of different seasons, so there are entire seasons, but also within that there are particular days of celebration, or what we might call feast days. And so Advent is is a season; it's not just uh, a day. It is a season, and this is actually the start of the new church year. So you didn't realize this, but this is like liturgical New Year. So happy New Year! Um, so it's kind of liturgical New Year today and uh, we need some streamers or something. But, um, so again, Advent is a season and, and crucially, this is a season that starts four weeks or four Sundays before Christmas. Why, why is that? Well, well, this is a season uh, of preparation primarily of two things. First of all, this is, this is a season in which we are preparing ourselves for the celebration of Christ's first coming at Christmas. And this is probably the dimension of Advent that people are most familiar with. But this is also a season in which we are preparing ourselves and and, and anticipating and longing for Christ's second coming when he will come and, and set everything right. So this is a time of preparation for these two uh advents or, or comings by the way. Yeah, the word advent just means coming. And so uh that that's really central. But there's there's a dimension of this season that is often overlooked. There was a medieval theologian named Bernard of Clairvaux, I referenced him a couple weeks ago, but, but he wrote about what he called Christ's third advent, and what he suggested is that this is a time not only to prepare ourselves for Christmas, not only in anticipation of Christ's second coming, but also for Christ to come afresh into our lives here and now. And uh, as I shared a couple weeks ago, and if you weren't here with us, I, I encourage you to listen online. It was an Im- important message. So I shared a couple weeks ago, uh, sometime in the past month or so, I, I really believe I, I heard the Lord say to me, prepare for an outpouring. And if that's right, what that means is that God intends to pour out His Spirit uh, um, upon us in greater measure and to move among us in, in a greater way. And and I don't know what that looks like. I don't know when, but the call with that is, is to prepare. And so, um, what that means, though, again, is that, that we, we have to, to prepare, and, and so that really ties to this whole Advent theme. Now, I know that sometimes when Advent rolls around that you can almost maybe sometimes greet it with a yawn, you know? It's almost like, well, it's that time of year again, and I don't know, maybe I'll light a candle, but it can be easy to kind of just go through the motions. It, it really can, but I just, as we enter Advent this season, I just have the deepest sense that this is like a, a divinely ordained moment for us as a people, that this is business as usual, that Christ is truly calling us to seek him, truly calling us to prepare in this time. And so as we come to God's word today, I just have great expectation for God to speak to us and and meet us in this place. So we're starting a new series today, which we're calling Prepare the Way. We're drawing from language that we just read from Matthew chapter 3, from the words of John the Baptist, where, where he proclaims. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, in, in, in ancient times, when a king would go to visit a, a region, he would send out heralds before him who would li- who would proclaim, prepare the way, and, and the summons was to literally do that, to go out to the roads, to the, the paths, and to remove things like rocks or maybe branches of trees that had fallen upon it, to remove that, remove anything that could impede the coming of the king, and as we saw last week, Jesus, he's actually a king. He's not just the baby in the manger, he's actually the coming king, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. So central to this season is this call to prepare the way for him in our lives. And and, and that's really the focus of this series. And and so the question is, well, well, what does that look like? And what does it look like to be a people who is prepared for Jesus coming? Well, that's what we're going to learn in this series. And to help us, we're going to be looking at some letters that Jesus wrote. We find these in in the book of Revelation. Now, before we take a look, let me just briefly share about the book uh, of Revelation. I I realize that some of us uh, come from backgrounds where people did some bizarre things with this book. Let's just be honest, right? So so too often, this book is used as sort of like an end times cookbook, and often people use it, yeah, I mean, and people often use it to feel just like this wild speculation. So just a story to illustrate, many years ago, I was on staff at a a large church, and I was fresh out of seminary, so I was kind of low man on the totem pole, and so I got tasked with organizing the church library, which was in a state of utter disrepair. And this was fascinating. So part of it, I was organizing, but part of it, I was tasked with quality control. So they wanted me to go through every book and like, should this actually be in this library? And it turns out, at least half of them shouldn't. I, like it was some of them is like, I wouldn't even give them away. Like, no, like I don't want to do harm. Like I'm just going to toss these. But so I discovered in this whole process, uh, just the most uh, p- precious gems. Um, just some fascinating uh, 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 books. And I discovered a whole genre, which I will call antichrist speculation. And so, for example, one book argued very uh, strongly that Mikhail Gorbachev was the antichrist. And if you weren't a child of the 80s, he was the former leader of the USSR. Well, that that didn't turn out. So, okay. So another book was, well, that Saddam Hussein, he is the Antichrist. Well, that didn't turn out. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but just that to illustrate that that too often the book of Revelation has been used in these kind of these, these, these strange ways. I know for, for many people, therefore, it's people are like, I don't even know what to do with this book. Like, I don't know if I even want to read this. Like, there's almost like this, I don't know. And so I just, my, my prayer is that we would be able to approach this book with fresh eyes because it Jesus has a message for us in this book. This isn't about doom and gloom and let's get scared and let's, I I don't know, this is about Jesus. This is a book about Jesus. So how how should we read this? Well, how you read a book, and this is just kind of Bible reading 101, how you read a book depends on what kind of literature it is. So a big question you need to ask of a book is always, well, what's the genre? Because you read poetry one way, there's figurative stuff, You read history another way, right? And so depending on the genre of the book is is going to dictate how you should read that book. And so it's really important that we understand something about the genre of this book. And it's kind of complicated, actually. (laughs) It's kind of a mix of three different kinds of literature. And so the first thing is most straightforward. And so this is, first of all, this is a letter. This is a letter. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 starts like this. It says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So John is the author, and he's writing a letter to seven churches in the province of Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, and, and, and by the way, John is in exile at this point. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He, he's a prisoner for the faith. Uh, but this isn't an ordinary letter, because as we read in chapter 1, uh, that as one day, as John is in prayer... That Jesus came to him in a vision and gave him a revelation for him to share with these churches. So Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 2, it says this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So because this is a, a revelation from God, not just an ordinary letter, this is also known as apocalyptic literature. Now, this is confusing for us because when we hear that in our culture, what do we think of? We, we think of some catastrophic event that's happened. So you think of like apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic films. So think of like, I don't know, Mad Max movies or Terminator movies or like One, Two, Three 2, or like 12 Monkeys. So I'm dating myself. These are like all 90 movies, I think. Um <laughs> But you know all these things are like something catastrophic is happening well that's a different sense of the word apocalyptic than the word that the Bible uses in in this setting. So when the Bible uses the language of apocalypse, what this has to do with is revelation it's a revealing so this book is what it is it's a revealing it is an unveiling of the deeper reality behind the world that we see, and so that raises the question, well, what is this book a revelation of? And, and I know a lot of people think the only thing that this book is about is the end times, but what I want you to know that this, the, the purpose of this book is, is so much deeper uh, uh, than that. It includes that, but it is, is a much fuller picture. And one way we see this is, is right in the very first verse. And so here are a couple different translations here. The NIV puts it like this, the revelation from Jesus Christ. But other translations, another one, ESV, for example, says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, which one is it? Well, in Greek, actually both work. And I think this is actually, it's both. Both are actually true to the text because this is both a revelation from Jesus Christ, but this is also a revelation of Jesus Christ. Really, the, the primary revelation of this book is Jesus, uh, uh, of who he is, of uh, of his heart for his people then and now and of what he is up to in the world. So this is a revelation, not first and foremost about the end times, but first and foremost, actually, of Jesus. And so I just I just, I just encourage you, again, just to see this book with fresh eyes. And if you get some time this week, I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 1. It's just an amazing, amazing uh, text. And so in this letter, John, he, he's testifying to everything that he saw in this vision. And then in verse 3, he says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this what? This prophecy, okay, so this is a letter. It's apocalyptic literature, but it's also prophecy. Now, I know that when many people think uh, about prophecy, the only thing they think of is foretelling. In other words, foretelling what will happen in the future, but prophecy is equally about forthtelling. In other words, also revealing what is the case. And so there's kind of this present and future dynamic that you see in this book. So just for example, Revelation 1.19, Jesus says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, in other words, what's present, and what will take place later. That's the future So there's both this present and future dynamic uh, in this book. Now, I know this is a lot of setup, but just hang with me for just a a couple more minutes, then we're going to jump into this text, okay? So prophecy has two uh, main functions. So first of all, it's to encourage. It's not to scare people, okay? It's to encourage and, and build up. But second of all, it's also to challenge. It's to encourage and to build up and also to challenge. And so as we look at these letters, we're going to be hit by both of those things, both encouragement, but also we're going to be challenged by Jesus. And so that that's just a bit about the book of Revelation as a whole. Let's talk just for a moment about these letters we're going to look at. So Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters that Jesus has sent to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And these are real churches. They're struggling with real things. These aren't just symbols for something else. These are real churches struggling with real things. And, And Jesus has a word for them. And Jesus has a word for us today. Now, to tie this to the series, one of the themes that runs through this book is the theme that Jesus is coming. Revelation 1, verse 7, John says, look, he is coming With the clouds and every eye will see him. If you fast forward to the end of this book, Jesus himself says, look, I'm coming sooner. In the King James, he says, behold, I come. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So throughout the book of Revelation, there's this theme that that Jesus is coming And so I want to look at these letters from the vantage point of, well, what does it look like to be ready for Jesus to come? That's what we're going to see. And all these letters we're going to look at, they follow a similar pattern. And first of all, there's a commendation. There's something that Jesus is affirming about these churches. But then second, there's also in all but two of the letters, there's also a word of correction. And he's saying, hey, look, there's something here that I need to address, and then finally there's there's a word of warning and promise, a promise of what God has in store for them in the future, okay? But Jesus' heart in all of this, you have to hear, is love. That is the motivation of his writing these letters, okay? And so today we're looking at the first of these letters, which is Jesus' letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. And here's just a little background on the city. So this would, would have been the most important city in the entire region. So for us, this would be like LA. Okay. So this is the most important city in the region. And, and, and as a result of that, the church of Ephesus, you might imagine, and it was actually the most important church in that region. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll, you'll see that Paul, the apostle, on one of his missionary journeys, he went to the city of Ephesus, and he had a season of ministry there that was just actually just phenomenal. And there's actually no place where Paul spent more time planting or pastoring a church than in the city of Ephesus. And it had a tremendous start as a church plant. Uh, But now when John is writing this letter uh, to the church of Ephesus, it's it's been many years now since the church was founded. And so uh, let's take a look here. This is Revelation chapter 2. We're starting in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is a reference to Jesus and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in chapter 1, we are told that these seven lampstands refer to these seven churches, okay? So this is kind of some of that apocalyptic imagery, uh, but in verses 2 through 3, uh, Jesus starts by, by giving the church of Ephesus a commendation. And, and, and he's saying, hey, here's some things that are really going well. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So the first thing we see here is that when Jesus looks at the church of Ephesus, he is delighted in them. He is so delighted in them. And there are three specific affirmations that I want to highlight from this text. And and first of all, Jesus says, I know. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. And what we see here is that Jesus is not distant, as some people conceive of God, that he's actually, it says, again, he walks among the lampstands. He says, I know your deeds. He's saying, I see you. I know your hard work. I know your sacrifice. He has this personal knowledge of their lives. So, So the first word of affirmation, he's saying, I know you. I see you. But the second word is closely related. Not only does Jesus affirm his knowledge of the Ephesian church? Specifically, he commends their hard work and perseverance. Their hard work and perseverance. So first, let's talk about their hard work. Now, these are people who weren't building their own kingdom. These are people who set about, and their their passion was to build the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God go forward in their city. Uh, they, these are people who made Jesus their business in their city, and they worked hard at it. And, and, and so Jesus is affirming them, and he's like, way to go. He's like, way to give your life for the gospel. Like, way to give your life for others. Way to go giving your life for my name. He's just affirming them. And you see, they understood that they were just like kingdom coins in God's pocket and they spent their lives for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, way to go. He's just applauding them. And see, these are the kind of people, you know, if someone were to walk in here who who is new, maybe passing through town, they would be the first people to reach out to them and to and to just kind of enfold them in community. They would be the people who would just be rushing to, to care for the poor and those in need in their midst. These are the kind of people who are just thinking, gosh, how can we see the, the knowledge of Jesus spread throughout our city? These are people with vision. These are people with passion. They're working hard for the gospel. And, and Jesus just loved that. He was just so excited about that but not only did they work hard but we also read here that they persevered they persevered now it is never easy in any context to 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 persevere and walk with Jesus for a lifetime but especially in this context uh, of, of of Ephesus at this time so this was a point in history where there was tremendous persecution taking place against the church just last week Josh pointed out that our central confession is Jesus is Lord. And what that implies is that therefore Caesar is not. And once that really kind of dawned on Caesar and the powers that be in the Roman Empire, guess what? A heavy assault came upon the church. And we had brothers and sisters who were being dipped in tar and being lit on fire as like tiki torches for parties on the Palatine Hill in Rome. And yet, think about this, that Christians in Ephesus, they stayed faithful. They persevered through all of those trials. And Jesus is saying, way to go. Way to go. I see. I know your hard work. I see your perseverance. And he is applauding them. He is applauding them. And think about this too, that, that this is written, this text is written probably, I don't know, 40 years after the founding of this church. So there are some people here who have been following Jesus for decades amid such heavy persecution. And Jesus is saying, way to go, way to keep the faith, way to persevere, way to go. So first, Jesus says he knows them. Second, he affirms their hard work and their perseverance. The third thing he affirms is that they haven't compromised. They haven't compromised. Now, in verse 2, Jesus says this. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. So, so there are two parts to this verse. So first, Jesus affirms here that this is a church that is holy, holy. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Now, I know that that language in our, kind of to our ear, that sounds like very like, whoa, like that's like that's a very non-PC language for our context, right? Uh, and, and in part, I think that's because in our context, we, we often talk as though tolerance is an unqualified good. Now, in many contexts, it is a genuine good. But, uh, what we see here is that it's not an unqualified good. So let me help you, just kind of, let me unpack this. So, so let me ask you, should we tolerate racism? Should we tolerate sexism? Should we tolerate terrorism? Just kind of. Shrug our shoulders. Should we tolerate uh, child abuse? No. We see. I think anyone. Once you start really thinking about it, everyone will recognize it. No, tolerance is not an unqualified good. And so, what Jesus is, is commending here is that they were not tolerating evil in their community, and that is a, a, a wonderful thing. Jesus is saying, "That's a wonderful thing." There are some things we simply shouldn't tolerate. But to be clear, what we're not talking about here is being like self-righteous, and that kind—that's of, that's not what is in view here. It's about holiness. Jesus is saying, "Way to go! They are—they pursued holiness as a community." He's saying, "Way to go! Way to go!" But the second thing Jesus affirms in this verse is the Ephesians' theological integrity—that they had theological in- integrity. So he says that they've—they've they've tested those who claim to be apostles. But are not. Now, if you read the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, there we read about how Paul, when he was leaving, uh, the, the church at Ephesus, he'd spent uh, a long time there. But when he was leaving, he, he gave, he gathered the elders and he gave them sort of an apostolic commission and he warned them. He said, there are going to be people who come, wolves in sheep's clothing, and they are going to come and, and they are going to, 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 to come both from the inside and the outside. And, and they're going to try to distort the truth and draw followers after themselves away from the truth. And so he's kind of warning them of, of this theological assault that is going to come upon the Ephesian church. But thankfully, we see here that they heeded Paul's warning, that they were faithful, that they guarded that deposit of faith that they inherited amidst many, many pressures and amidst all kinds of different doctrines and stuff that came rolling through town. And, 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 and they, 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 they really just retained this theological integrity. And so Jesus is saying, way to go. He loves that. He's saying, way to go. And just a pastoral word, uh, on this, uh, we live in a time uh, where we have a tremendous need for discernment. Uh, we have just such a, such a need, and so on the one hand, we have this thing called the internet, which in many ways is a wonderful thing, but on the downside, now everyone's their own Google theologian, right? And there's such a lack of discernment. And I have had so many conversations with people uh, where it seems that you know, you know, uh, you know, just well, I'll put it like this. That just because someone has a podcast, just because someone has a self-published book, just because someone has a website doesn't necessarily mean that they are a legit teacher. Right? Do you know how easy it is to self-publish a book these days? Do you know how easy it is to get up a podcast or a website? It takes about 10 minutes. So don't believe everything you read. And what we see here, it says they tested. And so we need to learn how to actually, well, first of all, it means you actually need to know the Bible, <laughs> you know, so you actually text what you're hearing and compare that to the Bible. And, and they were, they were in fellowship and, and they, they'd retain the apostles teaching and, and they prayed. So, I mean, there's so much we could talk about all that just to say that we live in a time that we need discernment and the Ephesians here are a model for us. They are a model for us. So Jesus, the third thing he affirms her is that they did not compromise either in terms of uh, ethically or even theologically. And so Jesus is saying, way to go. He's saying, way to go. Now, if you were in the room when this letter was first read, and that's, this is how this would have come. So somebody would have arrived with this letter, and they would all gather together like we are in a room, and they would have read this letter out loud. So, so far, you know, they've been like, yeah, like we are killing it. Like, yes, yes. But then... There's like a little, little little turn in the letter. <laughs> in verse four, it says, Yet I hold this against you. And you're thinking, Oh man. Uh-oh. It says, Yet I, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, again, this is spoken in love. This is a hard word, but this is spoken in love. Jesus is saying this because he loves them, right? So just, you have to remember that. But one of the things this reveals is that hard work, perseverance, theological integrity, moral integrity, all really, really important. Really important, but not enough. Not enough. Now, when you, when they first heard this, you can imagine the Ephesians must have been thinking, like, like what more do you want, Jesus. Like, I've, I kept the faith amidst all this persecution. What, what more do you want? Well, his answer is what? I want your love. <laughs> I, I, I want your heart. I, I, I don't just want your deeds. I want you. And I want you to know my love. You, you see, you see, he's saying like, this is actually, if you read throughout scripture, like, this is actually the highest and greatest commandment is what? Love. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, look, you, 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 forgot what is actually the most important thing. The most important thing. There's a, there's a, there's a part in, in the Revelation chapter one in this vision that John has. And, and at one point, so he hears Jesus speaking, but then he turns and he sees him. And when he sees him, it says, Jesus' eyes were like blazing fire. And you know what I think that fire is? I could be wrong, but I think this is the fire of God's love for you and for me. He has just this all-consuming fire of love for us. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know this love. I want you to live out of this love and then love me and love others as a response to this love. I I was at a conference a few months ago and uh, there was a time of worship. It was just an especially sweet time. And I was really connecting with the Lord in a deep way. But at one point, I, I really heard the Lord say something to me that just stopped me in my tracks and what I heard him say, just that still small voice, but powerful voice, was, I want you to be a lover, not just a doer. I was like, ooh, wow, Just that just really cut to the heart. You see, that is what he's saying, actually, to the Ephesians, that you're doing a great job at doing, you are killing it, but don't forget your first love. I want you to be a lover, not just a doer. You see, it can be so easy, like the Ephesians, to just get so focused on, on doing things for Jesus that somehow, somewhere along the way, we forget the whole reason. We forget the whole heart behind it. It's so easy to happen. Uh, imagine a, a marriage in which the husband, let's say, uh, is faithful, you know, and he and he's a hard worker. He takes out the, you know, not only, you know, during the week with his job, but, you know, he, like, actually takes out the trash and, you know, helps around the house, helps with the kids, you know. But um, but imagine where he's got duty but no love. What what kind of marriage is that? That's not a great marriage. And that's what Jesus is getting here. That's kind of a picture of the state of the Ephesian church where their love has grown cold. But you see, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming for coworkers. <laughs> he's not even coming for a congregation. He's not coming for a group of activists. He is coming for a bride, a bride that he is madly in love with and who he wants to love him back because there is going to be a marriage supper that we are invited to. And so Jesus is calling the Ephesians back to this love that he has for them, that he wants them to have for him. He wants them to be a people who who know his love and who love him above all else. That is the call of this passage. So Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. This language is actually reminiscent of a passage from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. Jeremiah, he was a prophet. And so this this is kind of Yahweh's lament over his people. And he says this. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, in other words, to Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. So, so Jesus is calling the Ephesians to return to this kind of love that they had at first, to love him above all else. Now, to be clear, the problem is not that the Ephesians were working hard. Again, Jesus commended that. So it's not like, uh, you know, he's, he's calling them to, to stop the things that they're doing. No, he's affirming that. What he's saying is, hey, amidst all that, do not lose your love for me. Do not forget or forsake your first love. I want to share a quote that relates to this. This is from uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, you may be familiar with his Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote all kinds of different literature. Amazing mind. But he he writes this. This is in a letter he wrote. He says, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both the first and second things. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about how if you put anything else uh, above your love for God, second things in his language, good things. You know, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's whatever. Second things, are things that are not ultimate, penultimate things. If you put second things above the first things, not only will you lose the first thing, but the second thing will also get destroyed in the process. So he gives, you know, example. Let's say you make alcohol the center of your life. Not only will you lose the most important thing in your life, you lose your job, you lose your family, I mean, all these things that will ruin your life if you kind of become, the, that becomes the ultimate thing in your life. But also, you'll even lose your ability to enjoy alcohol. Right, and so it's just an example. where You put a relationship as, as the first thing in your life, it will just eventually warp everything else. And so, if you put a second thing above the first thing, it will destroy not only the first thing, but the second thing. Let me just give an just bring, bring this home a little bit more. So, I once heard a great line. I can't remember who said this, uh, but it was this: "It said the greatest threat to your ministry is your ministry." <laughs> and what this is getting at is that if you make, let's say, for someone in my position or all of us, we're actually all called the ministry, by the way. Uh, we're all called the ministry, uh, not vocational, but we're all called the ministry. And so, but if you put your serving of Jesus, you make that ultimate, guess what? Over time, you will burn out, uh, you will become jaded, you'll become cynical, and eventually you'll probably just throw in the towel. it, it that, yet the greatest threat to your ministry is your ministry. If you put serving Jesus above your relationship with Jesus. And so the call of this passage is actually to have our relationship with Jesus, our love for Him to be first. And guess what? If you do that, the second things get thrown in. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me. That's relationship language. If we stay close to him, guess what? The inevitable byproduct is fruit. It just flows. So again, you put your first things first, the second things flow from it. You put second things first, you put fruit first, guess what? You lose both. And so it's such an important uh, message. And so Jesus is calling the church at Ephesus back to the first thing, to the main thing, to love him above all else. One of the things I find so fascinating about the history, I've been doing some reading of the history of revival. In other words, great moves of God throughout the history of the church. You know how it always starts? With people praying, with people prioritizing the relationship with God. There's something called the East African Revival. It started with two guys praying regularly. They would pray and they would pray. Uh, there's there's a there's a revival that happened. Can it start? Guess what? With a couple who decided oh, we're just going to give our mornings to Jesus. They prayed, and, and there was a move of God. You see, you put first things first, and the second things get thrown in. Such a powerful word. Such a powerful word. Now, if you if you find yourself here today, and you find yourself like me, kind of convicted <laughs> by this passage, you might wonder, well, how can we take a step toward? really just returning to Jesus as our first love. And so I want to talk about that. But just first, let me say something about how, what I think is not the solution. Um, I think sometimes we can think in our culture that, you know, if, if I just found uh, the right pastor or the right podcast, the right teaching, then that will like reignite my passion and love for Jesus. That will help me and keep me with this passionate love for Jesus. And I just want to say you might need to reconsider that. Uh, think about this. Think, think of who were the pastors and leaders of this church. Think of the teaching that was coming to this church. So this church was founded by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Might have heard of him. Not bad. Not a bad start. You know, not, not, not a bad start. He was alright, but he was followed by Priscilla and Aquila. And this is actually the, the premier apostolic couple who was deployed to strengthen the, the theology and leadership culture of this church. They spent some time there. Then there was a guy named Timothy, uh, Paul's true son in the faith. There's no one like him. Uh, the books of First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy while he was pastoring this church. Uh, so you've got Paul, uh, Priscilla, and Aquila, uh, Timothy. Oh, and then uh, to round it out, there's this guy, uh, John the Apostle, the one Jesus loves. And so all of these leaders, some of the best teachers and Christian leaders in the entire history of the church, if they couldn't keep the Ephesian church loving Jesus, How could we possibly think that the right podcast is going to do that for us? I mean, I hope that doesn't sound harsh. But I just, we have to really think about that. And I think what the lesson here for us is that each of us has to take responsibility for our life before God. No one else can do that for us. Each of us is invited to take ownership of that and to come to Him. Now, of course, I hope and pray that teaching and my teaching and whatever other teaching is blessing you and encouraging you. But ultimately, we have to really own our relationship with God. So important. So, so that's just a kind of a, 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 a kind of a, a introductory uh, comment. But really, so how how do we really re- re- return to Jesus as our first love? Well, I think there's a clue here. In verse 5, Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. And and so I think it's important to reflect, like, what is it that gave you life, uh, you know, uh, in in your relationship with God? What did you do at first? And as I reflect on my own life, when I first started following Jesus, uh, what was so important is that I I spent time with him. (laughs) I, I spent time with him, and it wasn't with, like, because I was trying to get something from him. I just wanted to be with him. Like, I just wanted to get to know him. I, I just wanted to enjoy him. It wasn't because I needed to, to get something for my sermon. It was just like, no, I just wanted to be with him. And and uh, it can be easy to lose that. It, it really can. And and so sometimes, like, we just, like, I think, like, we're kind of like, ramming our Amazon shopping cart into God's knees. It's like, hey, just, okay. Like, like, that's okay. But I also sometimes, I just want to be with you. Like, I, I just want to n- know you. I just want to pour out my love on you. And I want you to, to love me. I just want to enjoy this. Uh, sometimes when, when, when a couple is struggling, uh, uh, you know, in their marriage, uh, you know, and they'll go see a counselor, often they will be asked, uh, when, when was the last time you, you went on a date? And if the answer is, oh, we don't really do that anymore, uh, the obvious uh, advice is, well, I think you should do that, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, how, how did you fall in love? Like, how did this relationship get started? Well, you spent time together. You spent time with each other and not just like in parallel tracks, just kind of like as like roommates or something. No, you spent time enjoying and getting to know and and appreciate one another. And then so I think that's just a picture. So really what what is so central to having Jesus as a first love is actually spending time with him, spending time with him. And I've been, as I've been seeking the Lord for myself in in the season, but Lord, how can I prepare For for whatever you want to do among us, and and whatever way you want to come to us, and one of the things I felt like he said to me is, I want more time with you, and so I asked him how much. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what that is, but I just like okay, and like I'm committing, I'm gonna, I'm doing my level best to do that. I'm not perfect in that, but I think that's the question to ask God: God, what are you calling me to in this? How how can I take a next step in in having you as my first love? So so important. Now there's a warning in a promise at the end of this letter. I uh, wish I had time to look at that, but simply the clock ran out. So I bless it to your reading. Um, but uh, Ben, why don't you come back up? Uh, but just in closing, let me let me ask you this. What is God saying to you today? Where is he speaking a word of encouragement over your life that he wants you to receive? Sometimes we have trouble receiving those messages from God or from others, but God looks at you and he smiles, just like he smiles at in church. You might have trouble believing that. So where is there maybe a word of encouragement that, that he wants to speak over you and he wants you to receive today? But also, where is he convicting you today? And where is he speaking a word of invitation? What is God saying to you today? The letter ends with these words. Whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.